Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. If you're going to be an investor and you're going to dabble in stocks, crypto, you name it, Fed policy is a key component to all of this. And following the Fed can really bring clarity to what may happen in the broader economy and how that impacts markets going forward. So today we're going to pull back the curtain on the Federal Reserve. I'm Andy Gersher, and this is Game. So I'm going to bring on my Fed guy, somebody you probably know well if you listen to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. So let's bring on David Jones, chairman of DMJ Advisors and author of the book, Understanding Central Banking. David, so glad to have you on the GAINS podcast. Delighted to be with you. A a lot of our audience already knows you from the Noon Business Hour. You've been uh, with us for over a decade. My go-to Fed guy, without a doubt. And uh, I'm glad to get you on the GAINS podcast. And for the GAINS listeners who don't know David, David used to be at the Fed. So let's just start off today's podcast talking about your time at the Fed, because you definitely bring a unique insight to the table. So tell us about your time at the Fed. I actually started my career at the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Um, it came as a result of a uh, one of my key mentors in my career, Professor Whittlesey at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, where I did my graduate work. And he got me an interview with uh, an official from the New York Fed. Uh, he Professor Whittlesey was trying to talk me into going into monetary policy and the Federal Reserve as a specialty in my graduate education. And um, the interview went well. And uh, I started my career um, at the New York Fed. Um, it's a fascinating place. It's It looks like a fortress. Um, it's modeled after the Strozzi Palace in Italy and um, really a unique working building. And I just have to add one note of special interest. As I was walking in the door of the Fed to begin my career there. And um, real quick, David, what year? What year are we talking about when you you first walked in the Fed? A long time ago. Okay. Um, I finished finished my graduate education in 1963, so I worked at the Fed starting in 1963 and uh, going through most of the rest of that decade. 
and, before I moved out into Wall Street. And when you went, first entered the Fed in 1963, you said w- what was interesting of note? Uh, an alarm went off. Um, the Fed has more gold in the basement, the New York Fed, than uh, I think almost any other uh, institution. And um, they're always testing the alarm system. And um, and on the inside of the New York Fed, it does look like, again, an Italian palace with dark hallways. And as I walked in the door of the Fed, a, a huge gate came down and shut. Um <laughs> everything off so oh, uh, and the bells started ringing so that was the beginning of my career there was no basis for the alarm they were just testing the system but it it is a rather jolting thing when a young graduate student from the University of Pennsylvania walks into the uh walks into that palace like New York Fed building Talk about uh, starting your career with bells and whistles. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, that's the perfect way to say it. Exactly. You could not get a louder bang than that was. Uh, also, by the way, love the Wharton School of Business. Love the University of Pennsylvania. Penn is a great campus. Um, just such an old school place. I've uh, been. I've seen sporting events there. I've been to you know uh, just a great, great. Uh, University, and then of course Wharton School of Business is just top notch. Um, so then you start your your uh, your career at the Fed, as we mentioned, with bells and whistles. And just tell me how you know you know moving up before you got into Wall Street, kind of uh, what your role was at the Fed, and 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 what you you learned and discovered about the Fed. Well, you know, once you walked through those doors and and the gates came down. <laughs> It was fascinating because I came to the Fed so long ago, actually. Uh, It was at a time when they were rather short on employees, uh, graduate students like myself. And so I had an almost perfect experience there. I started started out as a, a research economist. My first paper written was on Milton Friedman's uh, book about uh, the fact that monetary policy problems caused the Great Depression, uh, inadequate Federal Reserve response to that uh, massive economic crisis um, caused the Great Depression. And uh, I wrote a paper on that, and it almost was perfect. Uh, everybody liked it. And um, so that was my start, the important role of monetary policy, again, back in the Great Depression. And, um, and, and so I was in the research department, and then I got the opportunity to go down to the trading desk where actually Federal Reserve open market operations, buying and selling securities in order to affect uh, liquidity in the economy and, and, and keep markets uh, operating normally um, – uh, was 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 absolutely key in my career because it, it's really where the rubber hits the road, uh, or you can say where monetary theory intersects with monetary policy. Uh, it was truly the real world, and uh, that was just simply invaluable. And then finally, in in the New York Fed, I came back as head of the business conditions section, where all the economic projections originate and so it was just it 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 was just a perfect moment for me in 
in applying in a practical way all that monetary theory that I got at, uh, from Professor Whittlesey mainly at the um, Horton School um, in the economics program at the University of Pennsylvania. Did you ever get to meet Milton Friedman? I never met him, but I will never forget your your questions are perfect because I I, I went to many many economic conferences um, when I was um, at the Fed, and um, the uh, the one I remember most the the economics profession has a um, annual meeting which is you know, a big moment when economists go there to see what the job market's doing and listen to various experts on economics. And I went to one with Milton Friedman, and I'll never forget this. I was walking up the stairs in the lobby of a hotel, and as as I was approaching the top of the stairs, there sat in a in a in a almost throne like chair, none other than Milton Friedman and. He he was very small in stature. He was a sh- he was he was short and but when he sat in that chair, I mean, he, he, you know, you almost felt like you were looking at the aristocracy, which in <laughs> economics I think he was. And I'll never forget that. All he missed was a halo over his head, which in my imagination I suppose maybe he had, but um, uh, I'll never forget that. I, but I did not. Uh, take that opportunity to introduce myself, um, uh, but it was it was a moment that I, I will never forget. And obviously, I've been a, a, a religious student of Milton Friedman and his philosophy. Oh, I mean, really, a god in the world of economics and Fed policy, without a doubt. Remember that great series on public television that he had on free markets. I mean, it it was just a masterpiece. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. And then, so you, you, you got your stripes at the fed and then you moved over to wall street and talk about taking those skills and everything that you learned at Wharton and then the fed and then, you know, bringing them to Wall Street, because, you know, as I mentioned in the lead, you know, you're chairman of DMJ Advisors. Um, are, you're teaching as well, or, or, or are you still teaching? Uh, no, but I um, that's a, a little bit of a long story, but let's start with Wall Street. Yeah, I, let's start there. So after learning the ropes in a way that um, was invaluable in my career at the New York Federal Reserve Bank, I was recruited by a Wall Street bank uh, named at that time Irving Trust. It was eventually merged into the Bank of New York. But um, it was an absolutely fantastic experience because what I learned in monetary theory and policy at the New York Fed, I had to put it to work virtually immediately because one of the highlights of Irving Trust was a huge chart room and um on one huge wall of this of this large room uh were literally uh, pages of charts that you could turn and discuss as an economist to the uh chairman of companies that would come in um to try to get a loan from Irving Trust and so I had this great opportunity to begin to learn to express myself um, 
in an environment where you're talking to people that are going to listen to what you say and uh, and you better say it well. Um, and so that experience was also invaluable. Um, as, as time went on, I became better at um, leafing through the charts and making an e- economic presentation to um uh, executives both in the bank and in the business world that I would never have any op- have had as a young economist any other opportunity to have met. So uh, in terms of a career and in terms of the ability to speak and express myself, um, th- that was that was extremely valuable um, as a building block in, in my career. And I got a great insight into, um, you know, in, into not only how to express what I knew about monetary policy, but to apply it to people who are taking actions in the real world. And, and also, I remember I vividly, um, uh, they also asked me to do things like walk around um, in New York City and try to figure out uh, on what corner uh, – of the city, I should think about putting a branch of the bank. So I had to do all kinds of statistics on, you know, oh, wow. where other that's, banks that's were really interesting. and where the business was. And for an economist who was working out of the theoretical world, uh, it, you know, out of the ivory tower, in effect, it was uh, absolutely fantastic practical, just trudging around on those New York streets trying to figure out where Irving Trust should put a new branch. It was a great experience. Yeah, that Irving Trust was a heavy, heavy hitting commercial bank. Uh, long, so it was like, like founded around the Civil War and, and it had been a major, major player before you mentioned it being acquired by a bank of. New York in, in probably like the late 80s. But uh, and that's why we often have you on the noon business hour, because you have both the academia of the Fed and the economy, but you also have the man on the street and you can explain it, you know, explain a lot of these things in a very understandable way. Uh, I always tell people that you're the economist who doesn't speak like an economist. You speak like a normal person. And that's why I always go to you. So I think that it's it's clear now. I didn't know, uh, you know, 100% about your career. And it totally makes sense that you were able to, you know, went to Wharton, you were at the Fed, but then also working, you know, at in Wall Street, working for Irving Trust, uh, gave you that kind of man of the street feel. So then... Um, one of my mentors at Irving, just to make an aside, was a guy named George McKinney, who had come out of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, I think he was chief economist at the Richmond Fed and came to Irving Trust. And he was my teacher, in effect, um, to say, I just still can hear him. Uh, he has since passed away. He ended up teaching at the University of Virginia. But anyway, uh, David, I can just hear him. Um, if you can't express this in clear sentences, there's no reason to be as smart as you are. Uh, you can you can have the greatest mind in economics, but if you can't express it in a way that the average person can understand, uh, you're you're basically doing no good. I'll never forget that advice. Isn't that the truth, though? Because uh, you know, it's it, these are kind of big big concepts that. Um you know, 
are, are sometimes a lot of economists have a difficult time explaining to the individual. Um, and so as you exactly. So as you 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 moved along and then, uh, you know, you, as mentioned, founder of DMJ Advisors, you did some uh, uh, you were a professor as well. Let's, uh, you know, kind of ex- explain after Irving. Well, one more step that was very important is I was recruited at a bond house on Wall Street called Aubrey G. Lanson and Company. We were just a specialist in government securities, um, and the guy the company was named after was a man named Aubrey G. Lanson. He he had since retired and passed away by the time I got there, but um, it was just a perfect laboratory for me because uh, to reinforce this point I'm just making about the need to explain complicated ideas in straightforward ways. Um, I would sit in my office and contemplate, you know, where the economy is headed, what the Fed's going to do about it, like we talk about on your show. Um, and, um, and then I had to walk out to the trading room where we were buying huge amounts of government securities. Uh, we only stayed specialized in government securities, which was somewhat unusual. And so that Aubrey G. Lance did not, did not become a household name, but within the government securities market, uh, it was a powerful force. And so I had to meet every week on Friday with the officials of the New York Fed and talk about what we and Aubrey Lanston uh, thought the Fed was going to do. And, um, and of course, I would try to get some, some sense of what the Fed official was doing. Um, I, I, would, I would sort of sit across the table for a minute and say, you're going to ease monetary policy. And I, I would count the number of wrinkles in his forehead to see how he took that assertion. Um, but oh, anyway, it was, a, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was an excellent uh, experience again. Um, and the other part of it was, you know, I could be the smartest guy in the world, but I had to walk out to a bill trader on the trading desk who was buying and set, selling short-term treasury bills in huge amounts based on my interest rate forecast. So I couldn't just sit around in my ivory tower and say how great I was with all these rate forecasts. I had to take them out and present them to a guy who was going to either make a lot of money or lose a lot of money based on what that forecast was. I, I don't think there's ever any better discipline for an economist than that reality. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, talk about, uh, you know, uh, practicing what you preach and making it uh, happen as far as, you know, when your forecast is used to make huge, huge, huge decisions that dictate profits or losses, uh, you know, talk about uh, being thrown in the fire. That's exactly right. And, you know, I've thought so, so, so often in, in my career, and that's where I spent most of my career at Aubrey Lanson. And I, I, I was very lucky because part of that, Wall Street was just starting to um, get into your world of communication and, um, and particularly TV. Um, um, I'll never forget um, the way it's, started was I, I was, um, I got to be, I, I decided if I was going to make a name as a Fed watcher, and I was sort of a pioneer of Fed watching at that point, 
that I would have to be willing to talk to any reporter who called me and, and just be willing to spend enough time with them so that so that would help them understand what this is all about. What is the Fed doing? What does it mean for the markets? Um, and uh, how's the economy doing? And and, and that kind of demand um, uh, was really significant. And what so therefore what I started doing just by chance is a great reporter way back in the early days named Ed Foldesi at the Wall Street Journal wrote a bond column that was very popular. So what would happen is the producer at Mint, the McNeil-Lara News Show, for example, on public television would be writing in, commuting to New York and reading that bond column where he saw my name. So he would get into the office and call me and said, will you come on McNeil-Lara and explain to us what the hell the Federal Reserve is doing tonight? <laughs> and uh, that, again, was was just a progression of uh, a world that, at the time, I didn't realize how important it was. But that led as among many things to a Friday morning news show that um, I did with Stuart Varney, who's now on Fox. Yeah, a, I watch the show a wonderful, often. Wonderful yeah. woman Stu. named Deborah Martini. And I was on for almost a decade on that Friday morning show. And you just can't believe, I mean, you you know it from radio, but people listen to you and become your friend and you've never met them in your life. Oh, well, you know, Stu Varney does that really well. I watch a show uh, often in the morning, and, you know, it's like, it, it's not scripted, it's conversation, and that's where the truth comes out. And, uh, exactly. And it, it's, it's just that conversation, and, and just, and it, the one thing I was going to ask you real quick, the Federal Reserve at large is much more watched now than say 20 30 years ago it seems like the fed you know you wouldn't hear very much about the fed uh at least i didn't you know and and i was still i I was a foreign currency trader so i was aware of it and i i knew fed policy but it seems like you know the fed is examined much more now than it was when when i first got into foreign currencies and when i was younger is that true or it's absolutely okay. true. You're exactly right. Um, and my luck in my career was that I was sort of on the leading edge of that as the Fed became a much more popular place. I'll never forget Robin McNeil. I, I loved him on the McNeil Lair show. He was an excellent reporter. Um, he would look at me just before we go on the air. I was all lined up to talk about the Fed. And he'd, he'd say to me, David, the Fed isn't really that important, is it? That, that was a great line to have just before I was <laughs> That's ready funny. to go on the air. But you're exactly right. Back in those early days, uh, you know, the, nobody paid all that much attention to the Fed. Politics were much more important in Washington than the Fed was. And, you know, the... Uh... You know, going so as you moved along through, uh, you know, through the Wall Street and and picked up these skills. When did when did DMJ advisors come into the mix? Well, um, that was after retirement, and oh, okay. um, what I decided to do was, um, I, I I basically made my career in New York, and um, uh, as I said, starting at the Fed, and. Um, and so I, I tried to decide what I was going to do as I, um, when, when I got up into the range of retirement. And I said, well, I'll just start my own little company. And I, I, I was always fascinated by Colorado, and my oldest son was out there. 
so that's how I ended up going out there and then then creating my LLC out there, um, uh, which I still have. Um, and, um, and, and so that's how that, that, that was really, um, part of retirement, my early retirement. And then on top of that, um, we ended up buying in Sanibel, Florida, um, uh, a, 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 you know, a home, um, for the winter and a, a beautiful um, place by the way i i am a big fan i actually i i go out to bonita springs not for a while but uh oh and that, yeah yeah Great. so right That's very close the, you know that hyatt right across from the shopping uh i spoke there i yeah, love that place. yeah that that is one of my go-to places in that part of florida love that love making those day trips over to sanibel so uh and then you and then you ended up getting a uh uh, you started teaching there too once you got your. Uh, well, what happened is the newest of the Florida universities, Florida Golf, that's perfect word, G U L F uh, University, Florida Golf Coast University, uh, was created right near there, sort of in between Sanibel and Naples and Benita Springs, right in that area. And, um, and, and what happened is, l- listen to this one. Uh, so. Uh, I walk in, um, I, my daughter Jennifer was sort of my agent in all this, and so I walk in with Jennifer to the university, having never taught formally at all in a university, to meet the dean of the business school and and the associate dean of the business school. So I walk into the room, and the associate dean got up and said, Hi, David, how are you? I had never met the guy in my life. Oh, that's funny. But he's and probably. Guess where that came from? Where? Watching the Friday morning uh, Stuart Barney show. Of course. And using that, what I said about the Fed on that show, to teach his class when he was then teaching at, I don't know, University of Tennessee or somewhere. So, you know, it's a small world. And, uh, and I love teaching. I taught for virtually a decade in the MBA program. Um, at Florida Golf Coast University, a, a course on money and capital markets, and I absolutely loved. I I, I sort of missed my calling. Um, I just teaching is truly a noble profession. Yeah, and 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 we've been lucky enough to tap into your expertise to teach Chicago about this kind of thing. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You know, David and I have been talking about how the Fed has been behind. Uh, uh, you know, behind this inflation. We've been talking about this for months. Behind the curve. Yeah, behind the curve. So we're going to talk about that when we get back. David's going to kind of explain why they are so behind the curve and maybe what they should be doing. And maybe he'll, uh, we'll even get a little forecast from him going forward. Uh, Hey, real quick, be sure to subscribe, follow, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's an option for you. Really appreciate that. You'd be doing us a solid. Uh, And uh, as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new episode drops. We're going to continue our uh, Fed discussion with David Jones on the other side of the break. If you enjoy learning about Chicago and its communities, culture, and people, you will love Shades of the City. 
It's a new podcast from News Radio WBBM and Odyssey, hosted by me, Lauren Brown, where I pass the mic to the people and allow them to tell their stories their way. Subscribe now on the Odyssey app or Apple Podcasts, and stay tuned every other Friday starting March 11th for new episodes. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. All right, back with David Jones, chairman of DMJ Advisors and author of the book, Understanding Central Banking. All right, so as I was throwing it to the break, David, um, you and I have been talking off air for months now about how far the Fed has just been behind the curve, how they've misread a lot of things. And I wanted you to, you know, kind of open up the second part of the podcast and just explain what's going on here and why we're seeing the Fed behind the curve. Explain that. Well, it's been a dilemma for current Fed Chairman Powell um, because uh, uh, he's faced two major events um, earlier on, of course, the pandemic, which dominated uh, 2020. And, of course, now the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which the Fed chairman just yesterday referred to as highly uncertain. Um, he's faced events that really no other Fed chairman has had to face. So I, I will accept his um, uh, his special circumstances. But what I will not accept is the fact that, and we talked about this many times on your show, uh, the fact that he called inflation transitory or very temporary when in fact we were beginning to see the beginnings of a 
massive inflation increase, um, uh, and they were pretty obvious. Hey, yeah, credit uh, to you. Pumping new money in the economy, interest credit was so cheap it was almost free, and um, at the same time, the government was spending money like no tomorrow, and it does not take a Ph.D. in economics to figure out that when when demand is that strong because of monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, and particularly when you have some supply bottlenecks and it's difficult to get labor to come to work because of the pandemic um, and the government handouts uh, as a result of the pandemics, you're going to end up with inflation, too much demand pressing on very limited supply. is going to give you a lot of inflation. So you and I talked about this, uh, the reality that uh, when we're in that condition and the Fed keeps saying inflation is going to be temporary, they're going to, they're going to regret that. And, and the trouble is if, if you're, if you're behind the curve and too late in dealing with inflation, uh, it's going to take very high interest rates possibly to um, win the battle. Uh, uh, Chairman Powell said that his purpose was to achieve price stability while sustaining the expansion. And that is not going to be easy with inflation now running at, uh, for consumer prices, at least at seven and a half percent. And, um, Producer prices, earlier stages of price increases at 9.7%. We've got a major problem on inflation, and the Fed's not going to start hiking interest rates to fight it for another two weeks until we get to the Fed's mid-March policy meeting. Do you think that, you know, credit to you, too, because all along for months and months, we're like, what is he talking about? Transitory. This is permanent. We're going to see inflation. And, you know, that's what, what has happened and, you know, it's to the likes that we haven't seen since you started your career. Um, you know, I, I guess in the late 70s, you had a lot of inflation. Is it worse, you know, when when we do these comps, you know, and they always say, you know, we haven't seen the you know inflation move this much. Is it worse uh, now than it was even in the 70s? How does it compare back then to back then? Well, there was one difference. Um, I One of my acquaintances, I don't pretend he was a close friend, was the famous inflation fighter, Paul Volcker. Actually, he lived in my, uh, where I was living when I worked in New York, in Montclair, New Jersey, uh, and I met him in several different ways. I I didn't know him that well, but at least I met him. And um, you remember, it was Paul Volcker who faced inflation back then as high as it is now. There was a big difference. So inflation under Pearl, Jimmy Carter got built into the economy and uh, was really more difficult to handle for Paul Volcker. But but you'll recall um, uh, mortgage rates had to go up to 18 percent when Paul Volcker was trying to raise interest rates enough to kill inflation and particularly to reduce inflation expectations. And um, And I think the federal funds overnight rate, which we talk about a lot on the show, the official rate had to go up to something like 20%. I'm not saying in any sense that we're going to go anywhere near those kinds of levels, but that produced two recessions, one in 1980 and, and a more difficult one, a, a deeper one in 1981, 82. So it's going to be difficult. My point here is it's going to be difficult for our current Fed chairman, um, Jay Powell, to uh, – 
to to achieve price stability while sustaining the economic expansion. It's going to be difficult. And all I would say is that uh, the market, the the stock market, I think, is looking for the Fed to maybe raise interest rates by one or two percentage points uh, to do the job in fighting inflation. Um, the market may not be even close to where they have to, to how high rates have to go, even in these in, this environment, to uh, to have any impact on inflation. Shouldn't they maybe get even more gross or more aggressive coming out initially? You know, instead of this little, oh, we'll move this a quarter point, and this shouldn't you hit it hard, and then because uh, isn't it all about establishing the trajectory? Well, it's your point is extremely well taken. Um, I actually think there was probably a 50-50 chance that they were going to start with a uh, – the normal Fed rate hike is a quarter of a percentage point. Uh, the markets call it 25 basis points, but we're basically talking a quarter of a percentage point. Um, it's unusual for the Fed to start a policy process with a half a percentage point, but I think the, the Fed was leaning in that direction until we got the Russian invasion of the Ukraine which creates another set of uncertain circumstances for the Fed. So what the Fed chairman said yesterday in his congressional testimony is, I'm going to go a little bit easier, uh, but there will be a whole series of rate increases, maybe a quarter point in every one of the remaining, I think, seven policy meetings scheduled for the year. And, um, and that's what I've been saying on the show on your show for some time, uh, even back in the day when the Fed was only looking at two or three rate hikes and the markets were hardly expecting any, um, the reality is that, as as one of the Fed officials said today, um, uh, Chairman Powell, again today, was testifying, one of them said inflation is embedded in the economy, which it is. And it's going to get, and I would add, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, you know, a lot of the listeners to the GAINS podcast are active stock traders, uh, investors. I mean, some of them even go in crypto and some of these other areas as well. So the next question for myself and the GAINS listeners is, how does all this impact stocks going forward and what does this kind of tell you are are we potentially headed for a recession is there a threat of stagflation what what are you forecasting what do you see as uh you know the risks and what we're looking at going forward that's really the big question for the moment and um uh, all i can say is that um, I think it's going to be a lot worse before it gets better, a lot worse in terms of how much rates have to go up to fight inflation um, and how much damaging impact that could eventually have on the economy, which will make it very difficult for the Fed chairman to continue to sustain the expansion. Um, the stock market, I think, is of two opinions. Uh, one is that uh, look, we now know what the Fed's going to do. Uh, no Fed chairman has ever told anybody what he was going to do at, at the upcoming meeting. We just is, heard is that a misstep? He's only going to raise rates a quarter of a point. I almost fell off the chair when but he it, said that. It, is that a misstep by, uh, I mean, you're basically, I've never heard, like you just mentioned, you were surprised too. I mean, 
it, should the Fed be uh, indicating their policy? Well, I think he wanted to hold the market's hand, and he does I... a little bit too much of that. Um, and one of the market analysts, you know, in, in, after all these years in my career, I smile when I hear somebody on television say, well, you mean the Fed doesn't have our back anymore? I mean, <laughs> you know, we had cheap credit for a decade after, oh, after the credit crisis that we went through in 2007 to 2009 and then the pandemic uh, more recently. And, uh, and and some of these market people haven't even known what a world of higher interest rates is all about. So it's fascinating. Well, so there's one school of thought which says beware that the Fed may have to raise rates a lot more than we expect, and that could have a damaging effect on the stock market. But I think there's another school, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's another school that says, hey, look, earnings are great. This inflation is producing more revenue for these companies. Their earnings results are spectacular in many cases. So I don't. So the stock market's going to continue to go up no matter what the Fed does. Uh, we sort of have a, we will have a severe test of that theory, but I think that's really what the market thinking is all about. The Fed's role is not to hold investors' hands either. I mean, let's just recap what the Fed's mandate is. Well, you just said it perfectly. Um, the Fed's job is not to hold the market's hands. And um, and again, because of these severe crises, the pandemic, uh, that horrifying uh, coronavirus, and, and, um, and then followed by this shocking uh, televised destruction of the Ukraine by Russia, um, you know, uh, it, it's forced the Fed chairman to, to to basically at least go slower than he should be going now, particularly since he's behind the curve in terms of hiking rates to fight inflation. So it's, uh, it's a difficult environment. But the last thing the Fed should be doing is, uh, at this point, uh, given how severe inflation is, uh, worrying about how the market's going to feel about it. With uh, things looking like they might get worse before they get better, is there any place that people can get cover? Well, the the, the idea simply would be to, um, uh, you know, to, to there has been a significant flight to havens, uh, we call it, uh, uh, you know, treasury securities, uh, even going out to 10-year maturities. Uh, the best place is to, you know, to be in a short-term safe uh, security like the, like the Treasury security. Um, but um, but the answer is it's going to be difficult to avoid uh, that, e- even that, because rates are going to have to go up even on those safe uh, haven-like Treasury securities. And um, so the answer is it's going to there, – there, there's really – no place to hide. One can say, well, um, you know, with, with credit as cheap as it was, even savers who saw their savings account uh, returns go so low that they went into the stock market or they went into real estate or went into precious metals or even those cryptocurrencies. Um, uh, but there's that. But there really, it, it really is a difficult situation for a, a typical investor. The best answer is find a safe haven, probably in a shorter term government security. But um, safe havens are going to be few and far between. Are you concerned about stagflation um, 
David. And and you know what? Real quick for the Gaines listeners, uh, you're the perfect person to explain this. Uh, first of all, explain stag stagflation, and then um, then ex, you know, it, it, do you have concerns? Well, stagflation. The perfect example of stagflation is back in those days of the late seventies and and early eighties under Paul Volcker, uh, coming out of Jimmy Carter's administration, um, where we, where we, where it higher inflation, uh, became ingrained. Um, but at the, but at the same time, uh, economic growth was extremely slow. So the, the economy should grow somewhere between two and maybe 3% in a sustainable way. Uh, so stagflation would be a situation in which inflation is maybe twice as high as it should be. Uh, the Fed's target's 2%, maybe 4% or higher, and growth is close to zero. Uh, that would be a situation of, of, of stagflation. That's sort of like the worst of both possible worlds. I, I don't see that in this environment to this point. Um we have a great thing going for us in technology. It's a, you know, it's one of the greatest qualities this economy has. Uh, we innovate. Uh, we've had this fantastic uh, explosion of innovation in the tech area uh, in Silicon Valley, California, and elsewhere. And, um, and I think that's going to carry us um, this whole, you know, new world that we live in. And um, and so that makes a difference this time. And um, and I, and I think that will carry us. We'll have more productivity, more output per worker hour, more productivity and um, and and a, and a better sense of and a, and a better opportunity for growth is a better way to say it. So I don't see stagflation, but I would not rule out a recession. Uh, that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it isn't. I. I don't think we'll go along with with interest rates going up and inflation staying high and the economy just bouncing around between, you know, bouncing around close to zero. I, I, I think it may be that the Fed will have to raise rates so much that eventually we're going to have a recession. I don't think it'll be a terrible one, um, but but we will have at least two consecutive quarters of negative Growth, which by definition would be a recession. There's wow. an old saying that uh, that a recession is when uh, you're unemployed, and a depression is when I'm unemployed. But uh, I won't go into that. Yeah, I've, I, I've often heard like it's a recession if your neighbor loses their job. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's the Great Depression. If you've lost your job, if you lose it, we always talk about you being the author of the book, Understanding Central Banking. Give us a little nugget uh, or two from your book, Understanding Central Banking, that applies to the conversation that we've had here today. Well, it's a it it, it really is a book that um, that didn't get as as much distribution. Uh, my my wife says I know a lot about economics but i'm terrible on marketing um actually uh this was by far my best book and, and it was published by a little company called emmy sharp um 
and they were taken over by this huge publisher in uh, Britain, Rutledge, I think its name was, um, just as my book came out and um, uh, in 2014-ish. And, um, and so it's, it, it's hurt the distribution, but I really put my heart and soul in this book, um, attempting to do a lot of things I do on the show, but um, I've, what I emphasize is how active central banks have become, just the point we were making earlier, you were making earlier. Um, I call it the new era of activism. Central banks have never been this high profile and as active and um, as they have been, both when they've had to deal with the uh, great credit crisis of 2007 2009, uh, 2007 to 2009, uh, again, when the housing market bubble burst and and banks were extremely vulnerable by the way banks are in much stronger uh, financial position now and so we don't have anything like we had in that in in that terrible credit crisis but but since since that time since 2008 central banks have had to pump huge amounts of liquidity into the economy and um and and that that puts them in a different world, really, and, and gives them a lot more political visibility than they really want to have. Uh, the emphasis in the book and, and in early days for the Fed was Fed independence within government, where the Fed can make its own decisions about when it should be fighting inflation or trying to stimulate the economy, depending on what the economic circumstances are. So I went through in that book, um, you know, what has happened in this new world, particularly I was talking mostly about the credit crisis before we got into this more recent pandemic issue, but, um, uh, and, and how the Fed had changed its policies to, to, you know, pull out all stops, huge buying of securities, many unconventional actions, pull out all stops and, and, and gain a huge amount of visibility as a major force in the market um, uh, in this new world that we're in. And, uh, and the fact that stocks now dance so much to the tune of the central banks. So uh, that was really what I was, what I had, what I emphasized in the book. Has the Fed gotten more, do you think the Fed is now too political? Oh, my God, yes. Yep. Um, the visibility is way too high, and you can tell it by every time we see the Fed chairman in that congressional testimony. You know, I think you alluded to the point earlier, but the Fed's in business to give us price stability and maximum employment. Uh, Fed chairman Powell says that almost every time he testifies, and they're not in business to try to redistribute income worry too much about those on the low end of the spectrum um, of the income spectrum. Um, but, but just worry about keeping the general economy on track. And, uh, but they just keep getting tied up in all of these, um, particularly in, in this current world where, where there's so much emphasis on income distribution and, isn't that and, up to uh, legislators to, to come up with, you know, if they want to do income distribution, it's 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 not the Fed has this uh, politicizing. That's, that's of, you're exactly right. Yeah. Is, is this politicizing of the Fed? Has that in, it, it, in, in a way it has to impact decisions, too? Uh, you can just see it in Powell. He, he he tries to avoid this, but 
um, what's interesting is not too long ago, the Fed had some listening events, they called it, as a part of a broader policy reassessment. And um, and Chairman Powell spoke at one of these district reserve banks. I think it was Chicago, actually. Um, and and he became sensitive to the to, to how those on the lower income end, including minorities, responded to the Fed. And ever since those listening events in the Fed, and and given the fact the Fed is more political perhaps now than it should be, the Chairman Powell is worries about that. Now the interesting irony of all this is that guess who did the best uh with the trump tax cuts and um and the economic growth that we've seen particularly coming out of the pandemic and even before that uh coming out of the credit crisis guess who did the best the lower income of the yes i i've heard that i mean in, in a lot of different metrics too uh, that's an underreported thing, and and there's not often it's a mention exactly. of that. Uh, but you, every day you hear in the political arena the Democrats saying those tax cuts only help the rich. They did not only help the rich. They in fact were more beneficial to the to those at the lower income of the earnings distribution, the top, the bottom twenty percent. Uh, than the top twenty percent. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've I've heard that, and because uh, it's always been framed like, well, this is only going to benefit the one percent. Where in all reality, you, you look through this, and that is not the case. And and you just mentioned, you know, uh, the folks that benefit the most. Um, as we're wrapping up today's gains podcast, what's your parting shots? Your final takeaway from our discussion. Well, if I'm an investor, it's time to be a little bit more cautious. Uh, you know, have we ever seen anything better than this fantastic world of cheap credit and uh, the stock market hitting new highs, uh, you know, virtually every day um, um, uh, in in uh, 2021? Um, it, it's a, it was a world that uh, that was almost unreal in terms of how how much inflation of of market assets we've seen including the stock market how cheap credit has been um uh i would just caution that the world's going to change uh and if the fed has any hope of bringing inflation under control uh after falling behind the curve rates have to go up more than expected and uh, I think the market's going to take it on the chin. So a little warning there. Well, hey, thanks a lot, David. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, that's David Jones, chairman of DMJ Advisors in Denver, author of the book. And you got to check out his book, Understanding Central Banking. Um, hey, again, David, thanks for joining us and kind of pulling back the, the curtain to uh, kind of show us the inside of your career in the Fed and and Fed policy. I really appreciate you joining us today. Delighted to be with you. All right, that's going to wrap up today's GAINS podcast. As always, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's a possibility. Subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new episode drops. We will be back next Tuesday, and I look forward to seeing you then. A News Radio WBBM podcast powered by Odyssey. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 